going to be reading now from Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise men, and uh, we're going to have that scripture reading now, Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers in law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that had went on sorry, and the star they had seen went it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. Thank you, Kirby. Story of the wise men. Now, we were supposed to have Rick Reed today from uh, Cambridge, from Heritage, and he has gotten pneumonia, so we, uh, can, you can remember to pray for him, and you'll have to put up with me today in his place. And we're going to think about the wise men. Of course, there were three. We three kings of Orient are, isn't that how it is? It's funny how many misconceptions there are about this story, just from uh, the way it's remembered, the way it's sung about, the way that we depict them on our Christmas cards. Always three, always on camels. And, uh, you know, another, one of the biggest misconceptions, of course, is that the, uh, the wise men met the shepherds at the stable, which, of course, is not the case at all, because here in this story, we're going to find Jesus referred to not as a baby, but as a child. And we're going to find that the wise men meet him and find him in a house. So we're just going to get, I'm sorry to crush your Christmas uh, understanding of the wise men here just to start off with, but we'll get that out of the way. There are a number of mysteries in this story, things that as I read the story, I, I just can't figure some of these things out. And some of our understanding of these things is, is really lost to history. We don't necessarily have answers to them all. The first one being this one, who were these wise men or magi, as it would say in some of our translations? Who were these guys? And we don't really know. We understand them to be men of education. It seems perhaps that they were men who studied science, studied the stars. They seem to be men of wealth. They seem to be men of some political power, but we really just don't know. If you know some of the Old Testament stories, for example, the stories of Daniel and his three friends, when Israel was taken into captivity, they went to Babylon, 
And do you remember what Daniel and his three friends, we remember them by their Babylonian names, we shouldn't do that, we should remember them by their, uh, their Jewish names, which were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And Daniel with those three guys, they were being trained to become wise men in Babylon, educated men who could uh, consult with and give advice to the king of Babylon. So uh, when we think of some of these nations to the east, we know from history that there were these guys who were trained and educated, but we just don't know exactly who these guys were. Then we ask how far east, because we read that they came from the east. Now I talked about the wise men last Sunday when I was at the Spirit of Truth Church, so you can imagine where they thought the wise men were from, right? Persia. They believed that the wise men were from Iran, present-day Iran, Persia, and they very well may have been. They, some believe they could have been from Babylon, uh, Persia being a little further to the east. Uh, some think even perhaps further, perhaps even as far as India or, or beyond. And one of the reasons that's assumed is because of the potentially the, the length of time that these men had seen the star and perhaps been journeying to meet Jesus, but we just don't know for sure where these guys <clears throat> were from. And then the question of what was this star? This is a baffling question to me. What was it that they saw? Somehow they, as men who apparently studied the skies, studied science, studied the stars, somehow they had come to see a star or a heavenly body which they understood to represent the birth of the king of the Jews. So what was it? As you read through the story, it becomes even more mysterious. So they had seen a star. They called it a star in the east. They come to Jerusalem. And then after consulting with the king, as we're going to see, they get sent to Bethlehem. And as they're traveling that short distance, four, five, six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the star reappears and it stops over the house. Now this is where I don't, this doesn't compute for me because a star, is, when I walk along, all the stars just come along with me because they're so far away. So to have one star that's leading me to a specific house just doesn't compute for me. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you would have seen this. In 1997, I was living in Northern Ontario and this comet, now I'm gonna tell you because I'm trying to sound smart, this is the Hale-Bob Comet which was visible in the winter of 1997. Uh, it was named after Hale and Bob because they were the two amateur astronomers who first discovered this comet before, long before it was visible to most of us. But then in 1997, it was quite visible. And I, re I remember this. When you live in nor Northern Ontario, everything in the sky is way more beautiful and way brighter than it is down here near the city, right? And I can recall, I still have memories driving north on Highway 11, and seeing this comet right above me. And you could kind of see the tail, and, and I, so I looked it up. I remember her, hearing at the time that there was some comet that was visible, and this is the one that it was. So a comet is kind of like this. It's something that appears in the sky for a time, and it might have appeared to them in the east. But of course, it doesn't explain then how the comet somehow uh, you know, leads them south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and then stops over a house. That starts to sound more like Disney to me and, you know, pixie dust or something. 
So there's something supernatural going on with the star. We don't exactly know what it was, but we know that God was behind it, and he gave, somehow, he gave the wise men understanding. And that's another question. <coughs> How did they know what the star meant? I mean, some people think of these guys as astrologers, right? People who look at the heavenly bodies with superstition and say, well, this means this. And, and so it's a struggle for us to think if these guys were like astrologers, they're, they're, you know, it's like superstitious, it's like magic arts, and they're looking at the sky and somehow interpreting, and somehow out of all that, they got this correct interpretation that the star meant that Jesus was born. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. What's interesting, though, is when you think about the potential they came from Babylon or from Persia, was there any Jewish connection to those places? And of course, there was. Because what we know as the Babylonian captivity, of course, took place in Babylon, but then during or near the end of that captivity, the Persian Empire became stronger and conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so some of the Jewish people who'd been taken into captivity to Babylon, now they're under Persian captivity. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story about how uh, the Persian king Cyrus gave permission for the Jewish people to come back to their own land, but not all of them came, which means that lingering in the nations of Babylon, the lands of Babylon and Persia, there were still Jewish people who surely must have still had Jewish scriptures. And it seems to me the most likely explanation for how these men might have come to understand the meaning of the star may have been through the influence of Jewish people still living in their lands and maybe even from the Jewish scriptures that were still available with those Jewish people. Now, some people point to this scripture in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. <clears throat> I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, this is a prophetic utterance by a guy named Balaam. Balaam, do you remember the story of Balaam? Some of you might not know it. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He wasn't an honorable, godly prophet. But when Moab was concerned about Israel having come out of Egypt and now traveling through the wilderness and coming close to them, Moab is concerned that Israel's going to eat them out of house and home or conquer them in battle. So the king of Moab, named Balak, hires Balaam, the prophet for hire, and he hires him to curse the people of Israel, to call down curses upon them. Somehow that's going to solve the problem for the king of Moab. But every time Balaam tries to say something bad about Israel or to curse Israel, God puts these kinds of words in his mouth. And he's, and he's speak, speaking for God and he's uttering these things. Well, there's really no doubt <coughs> excuse me, that this passage probably does speak of the coming Messiah who we now know to be Jesus. The question, of course, is, did these wise men know this verse? Were there Jewish people who explained this verse? We just don't know the answer to those things. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it, to consider. And I don't think it's wrong for us to ask these kinds of questions. Now, one more that I want to show you, and that was this. Why was Jerusalem so disturbed? Notice, the wise men come to Israel, verse 2, they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. 
And then verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this has always been a mystery to me. Because weren't the Jewish people waiting for their Messiah? Wasn't this their great hope? Especially through, you know, the, the, the between years between the Old and the New Testament. Now they've had these 400 years of silence where there hasn't actually been a prophet. God hasn't been speaking to them. God hasn't been, they've been conquered by the Roman Empire. Why would Jerusalem be disturbed at the news that perhaps their king, their true king, had been born? It makes total sense, by the way, why Herod was disturbed. Herod was the sitting king. But he wasn't actually a legitimate king. He wasn't even Jewish. He had been appointed to his position by the Roman Empire. It makes perfect sense why Herod was disturbed. Because if there was a legitimate Jewish king who could trace his lineage back to King David, then his position as the current puppet king was very much in danger. And in those days, when a legitimate king takes the throne from an illegitimate king, what happens to the illegitimate king? He's gone. He's dead. Herod, of course, if you know anything about Herod the Great, he actually was one who loved to kill people. He killed his own, got in a spat with his wife, killed her. Wasn't getting along with a couple of his kids, killed them. Herod wasn't a good guy. We understand, and if you know the rest of the story, you know what he's going to attempt to do to Jesus. We understand why Herod was disturbed, but why was Jerusalem disturbed? Now, some would say, and this is probably the best answer I've ever heard, is that there probably weren't just three wise men. Sorry about the Christmas card you just bought and sent to somebody with the three wise men. It probably weren't three. And the very reason why the city would have known about this probably was because of the size of the entourage that the wise men traveled with. We don't know how many were actually wise men, We know they traveled with great wealth and riches, which means, and if they had any access to any kind of military uh, resources, they may well have traveled with a brigade of soldiers to protect them. Can you imagine traveling, if it was from Persia, we're talking hundreds of miles, we're talking a 400, or sorry, we're talking a four month journey to get from Persia to Israel. So it's possible that they were traveling with a large entourage. If they were wealthy, they had servants. They would have hired uh, protection, hired guns to keep them safe along the way. So it may have been the size of the entourage which caused Jerusalem to be disturbed. Because if a huge uh, entourage of people come from another country, very quickly word begins to spread as to why they came. These guys are coming saying, hey, we 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 heard you have a new king. Now, Israel's been conquered by Rome, they're being occupied by Rome, and the one thing they don't want, and we even see this later in the adult life of Jesus, is they don't want Rome to get angry with them. They don't want to stir the pot with Rome and have Rome destroy them, or kill more people, or destroy their temple, for example. They didn't want, they want to just keep the peace. Let's not rock the boat. Seems to me that may be why. Jerusalem was disturbed. This entourage comes with news of a new king. This could be trouble. Now there's one bigger mystery, a bigger question than all of these, and it has to do with the wise men themselves, their response. 
the fact that they had traveled all this way and, and what was going on in their minds and hearts to cause them to do what they did. So I'm going to unfold this mystery in a few, uh, in a few lines here. Biggest mystery. Why would the wise men sacrifice so much? Whether they came from Babylon or whether they came from Persia, they came a long ways. A rigorous journey. They wouldn't have had hotels to stay in along the way. They're in the wilderness, traveling through desert. Places where there are bandits and thieves. Traveling with wealth, gold, spices. Why would they have done this? Why would they sacrifice so much? No doubt, they'd left behind wives and children. Maybe they'd left behind business and income opportunity. They did it, but why? Let me add another line. Why would the wise men sacrifice so much to worship the boy king of another nation? Like, let's just look at verse 1 again. Verse 2. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, in most nations, certainly in the nation of Israel, you revered your king, but you would never worship your king. And I'm talking about your own king. Which of the Jewish people would ever have said, we worshipped David? We worship Solomon. No, they, they knew full well that that would have been idolatry. You worship only God. Imagine Israel saying, well, let's go over to the Moabites. We hear they have a new boy king. We're actually going to go and worship him. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense for these guys to come from Babylon or Persia to hear that there's a king born in Israel. It's one thing to say, well, I hear he's a really cute baby. Let's go check it out. Or he's a really ugly baby. We've got to check that out. <laughs> it's one thing for them to say, there's a new king. We're, we're going to go show our respects. Those kinds of things happen. Those political things happen between nations all the time. But for men to come from one nation to another nation and say, we actually want to worship your king. Can we just agree that doesn't really make any sense? Who would do that? Who would ever think of doing that. Now, we know in the Roman Empire, of course, Caesar had established himself as a deity. But of course, that's different. That's Caesar coming into other nations and forcing worship and things like taxes upon them. Here are men coming voluntarily from the east to Jerusalem saying, we want to worship your new king. That's a mystery. That's, why would they do that? Why would the wise men sacrifice so much to worship the boy king of another nation when his own people didn't worship him? How would you have felt to be one of the wise men and you come in this entourage with this quest? You want to meet this new king of the Jews. And when you get there, of course, you come to the capital city. That's where you would expect to find the new king. Let's go to Jerusalem. That's the capital. They go to Jerusalem, they ask about the new boy king, and they get blank stares. We don't know what you're talking about. Herod, the sitting king, doesn't know. He apparently hasn't had a new child. They knew it wasn't his. <coughs> On top of that, there's this troubled expression that comes across Herod's face. 
whispers through the city. Then he calls the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he asks them, does the scripture, does the old, do our Jewish scriptures tell us where the Messiah would be born? They say, indeed they do. And they quote in verse 5 from the prophet Micah, which clearly states, in Bethlehem. So after hearing this, Herod sends them to Bethlehem alone. Not with the chief priests, not with the teachers of the law. No one seemed interested in the fact that these guys have had some kind of prophetic vision from God saying the Messiah of the Jews has been born. We think he's in Jerusalem. Well, why don't you guys go? We're not interested. And in fact, as they go and eventually find the child, there's nobody else worshiping him. There's nobody else taking any interest in him. How do you explain that? And for me, that would have, that, my, my heart would have dropped right then. I would have been thinking in my head, I think we, I think we got this wrong. Because if the Jewish people don't even know about this new king, who are we to say? Who are we to think that we're going to find him? Why would the wise men sacrifice so much to worship the boy king of another nation when his own people didn't worship him and they found him living in poverty? Let's be honest about what the wise men saw. After they have their conversation with Herod, Herod sends them to Bethlehem, of course, saying, oh, come and tell me where you find him. I want to worship him too. No, he wants to kill him. So verse 9, after they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Verse 11 tells us it was a house. Now, I've used the word poverty here. That might be a little bit strong. I say that because a few reasons. When Jesus was dedicated at the temple shortly after his birth, his parents gave two doves as the sacrifice. The Old Testament tells us that was the offering that was allowed for poor people, people who couldn't afford a lamb. Joseph couldn't afford a lamb. Joseph had just been married. Joseph had just traveled to his ancestor's home, <clears throat> home town of Bethlehem. And now he's living far from home. So maybe he'd established himself as a carpenter in Nazareth, but now he's still living in Bethlehem. All I can tell you is that when the star stopped over a house in Bethlehem, it weren't no palace, was it? Wasn't the stable, it was a house, but it wasn't a palace. What were they thinking then? This? Here? This is the new king of the Jews who's worthy of worship, living in this modest house, whatever it was. Keep going. Their faith, their persistence, their resilience through all of these challenges is so encouraging to me. All right, let's knock on the door. Doesn't tell us they knocked on the door. I'm assuming they did. Knock on the door of this modest house. Door opens. What do they find inside? There is a child. 
Nothing special about him. Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus and say there's nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. According to scripture, it's more likely that Jesus was not physically attractive than that, that he was attractive. And sometimes our worst moments in terms of our appearance happen when we're, when we're very young, don't they? Some of us get better with time. <laughs> I wonder what they saw. We don't know exactly how old Jesus was. He could have been as old as two, based on how the story unfolds. Maybe he was still six months old. Maybe he had a dirty diaper. Maybe he had a snotty nose. But what those men saw did not look like a king, did not look like a prince. The mother who they met there did not look like a queen or a princess. There was no evidence of wealth or prosperity. There was no glory. And yet, their response, in spite of all of these challenges to their faith, was to get down on their knees before this little child. And they worshipped him. This is the greatest mystery to me in this story. And I find it very convicting because I don't know how much these guys knew or how they knew it, but I know how much we know. I know how I've spent my whole life raised in a Christian family, raised in the church, gone to Bible college and seminary. I know so much about Jesus Christ, and yet my heart, far too often, does not at all resemble the heart and the worship of the wise men. How is yours? As we head into this Christmas season, is there anything about your heart, your life, your response, your feelings about Jesus Christ, who is no longer a child, who grew to be a man, a divine man, who literally sacrificed his life on the cross to rescue us from sin, now ascended to heaven, sits on the very throne of heaven. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who upholds all things. He holds the stars and the comets in the universe. And yet my heart sometimes seems like the heart of Herod. It seems like sometimes my heart wants to say good riddance. Or sometimes I have to admit I'm kind of like the chief priests. I'm kind of like the teachers of the law who knew the right answer. They knew where Jesus would be born, but they couldn't be bothered to go and meet him. What is wrong with me? Is there an answer here in the lives of these wise men? How do we understand this kind of devotion, this kind of worship? And so I search for an answer. The first one I find is this. The wise men had inquiring minds. We believe they were studious. We believe perhaps they studied the stars. They were scientists. Somehow God had revealed to them, perhaps through a Jewish friend or through the Jewish scriptures. But they had minds that were engaged. Do you see that here? They were fully engaged in their thinking. There was a truth here that, that, that had been revealed to them about the king of the Jews, and they had taken hold of that 
And the truth that they had come to believe about him was unwavering. So this is the truth, right? Truth always drives our decisions, our attitudes, what we think is true, right? Sometimes the things that drive our truth that drives our attitudes and our actions isn't true at all. But for these guys, their minds had taken hold of real truth. They'd come to understand that there was indeed a new king of the Jews. He was actually divine. Somehow they understood that one of the great mysteries of all history and of all theology, that there could be a human being who's also God. It's only a human being that's actually God that should be worshipped. They had, somehow they'd come to understand that. They took hold of that with their inquiring minds. They took this as their truth, and that truth directed them and moved them to action. You see, all of us are moved by some form of truth. As I said already, for some of us, the thing that moves us isn't actually even true. Or it's a half-truth. We're all moved. The thing that gets us out of bed in the morning is some kind of information that we believe. It's our worldview. It's our understanding of what life is about and what's the purpose of my life. And whatever that is, that drives us. But for many of us, it drives us in the wrong direction. It drives us away from God. We're not worshipers. Or if we are, we're worshiping the wrong thing. Or we're worshiping ourselves. The wise men had inquiring minds. God had come somehow to reveal the truth of his son to them. And they were so captured by that in their minds that it began to move their hearts and their lives. That's the second thing I see. Passionate hearts. Passion. We're all passionate. It's the same truth here. We're all passionate about something. We're all moved by something, with a passion that I see of these men to leave behind their homeland, to make this arduous journey, this dangerous journey. And even when they hit these roadblocks, when there's no one else worshiping him, when he looks like the simplest, humblest child of poverty, their hearts drove them in worship. Down on their knees they went to worship one that they had come to know. God had revealed it. Their hearts were passionate. You know what I've found in my life? There's far too often when my heart isn't like this. And sometimes I've felt ashamed that I've had to ask God to give me this kind of heart. Have you ever had to do that? God, why is my heart so cold? Make me more like the wise men. Do you know you can pray prayers like that? God is delighted to hear prayers like that. He knows our humanity. He knows our frame and our dust. He knows what we're made of. And it's totally appropriate for us, those of us who've come to know the same truth, Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, when we find that our hearts are cold and unmoved, that we can ask God. Sometimes we need to go back and engage our mind again. Think deeply about who Jesus is, read about him, meditate on him. But we can ask God to stir our hearts toward this kind of passion. By the way, the other thing that's involved in this step is choice. There's will. We can make choices and decisions that lead us to worship Christ even when we don't feel like it. Have you ever found that to be true? And sometimes it's after we make the choice based on what we know to be true 
We make the choice to worship Christ, to serve Christ, that our heart begins to become inflamed again. There's choice here in this step. Based on what we've come to know to be true, we can choose to follow Christ. And then, of course, it leads to these lives of worship. I try to picture this. Probably a very small house, probably a dirt floor, and we don't know how many wise men there were, but they crowded in there, and they got down on their hands and knees before the child. And then, of course, they could not resist, began to open their treasures, gold, frankincense, myrrh, very, very costly items. And they begin to, you can almost sense for these guys, they could not help it. They saw him. They saw that he was real. Got to be in his presence and their natural instinct was to give. I believe this is what's going to happen to us someday when we're in eternity. Scripture teaches that through our faithfulness and our obedience to Christ, our sacrifice to Christ, that in eternity we will be rewarded with crowns. You believe that? I don't just get salvation, but he'll actually give me a crown. Jesus said, even for giving a cup of cold water, you'll not lose your reward. And you know why I think that's so precious? Of course, we're not going to take any of our earthly treasures with us, right? Not going to have them. No U-Hauls in heaven. The one thing I will have in those moments, in eternity, when I get to see my Lord, when I get to stand in his presence... There will be this reaction, this instinct in my heart to give him something. And we're going to do exactly what it says in Revelation that the 24 elders did. They took off their crown and they laid their crown before Jesus. That's what we're going to do in eternity when our hearts are transformed, when our selfishness is transformed, when we can see him for who he really is, when, when our hearts are filled with true love, with no distraction. But brothers and sisters, this is the life we're called to now. This life of worship. We demonstrate our worship to Christ by giving what costs us. Our possessions, our time, our energy. And when we really see Christ for who he is, our minds have taken hold of the truth and our hearts have been inflamed with wonder for who he is. It flows out into lives of worship. Shannon, I've learned this from Shannon. There's this mind or head, heart, hand sequence in the Christian life. God always begins with teaching us the truth of his word. We put it in our heads with the intention that our hearts would be transformed with love. And as our hearts are transformed, our worship flows out through our hands, our service, our giving. This is the lesson of the wise men. And I find myself this morning saying, Lord, make me more like these pagan wise men who knew who Jesus was, who loved him with all their hearts, and who gave all to worship him. We're going to close with a song uh, to help us focus on this truth and on this worship. So would you stand and join us as we sing?